This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. People deal it with anger. Some people deal it with just acceptance. And some are in the middle. Some some are angry, but somehow they are resigned to the fact that they are going to die. Um, and some, some people just want to get over and done with. That's Nancy, an Australian palliative care nurse. Speaking to doctors in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon, I'd learnt that in their countries, palliative care and assisted dying are seen as things that go together. Assisting a patient to die, the ultimate offer of help for those beyond even the skills of dedicated palliative nurses and doctors. Back home in Australia, the law forbids assisted dying. Without a law to protect or guide them, I wanted to find out how palliative care here deals with those same kinds of patients. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. A perfect combination of the eugenic impulse. The devaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion we of death. We played a game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the police. are obliged to charge me. Away. What the hell can you do? Uh, murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton and you're listening to Better Off Dead. I should warn you, the next two episodes may make you consider your own last days far more deeply than you ever have before. When I asked Professor Richard Chai, the Director of Sacred Heart Palliative Care Unit at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, if I could spend a week with full access to learn what it is they do, I was upfront with him. I told him I believed there should be a law for assisted dying in Australia, not a subject often raised within their walls, and that it would be one of the many things I'd like to discuss with him and his team. To my surprise, and to his credit, he agreed. I started with nurse Therese Compton. I have worked at Sacred Heart for coming on this beginning of my 11th year, and I've been a nurse since I was 17. I've always had an interest in... um, I really like looking after people who need care. I walked past one of the wards today and I just noticed uh, uh, a woman stroking somebody's hair and uh, that was a lovely thing to watch. It it felt like a universal thing to see. Oh, very much so, yes. I like people's hair to be done. Uh, I like people in pyjamas, like their own clothes rather than a gown and if they haven't got one or we find something. Uh, I like the person to remain the person in as much as they can. I want both my hairs done when it comes to (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see to that, Andrew. People come to palliative care for many reasons. It might be cancer, it might be autoimmune disease, it might be renal failure, 
It might take days, it might take weeks, patients might even leave and then return. But they only come here because their days are numbered. That's what makes palliative care different to any other branch of medicine. The aim is not to cure you, but to make you as comfortable as possible as you head into death. Can you give me some idea of the human parade that comes through here, the, the, the different uh, lives you that know, you see? This, you see everything from, from high court judges to homeless people who have lived in the park for 20 years. I suppose what you also see here is the truth of these people. Oh, absolutely. Because you only come here if you need care. You've got to a point where you need your symptoms well managed and you need some proper care, you need to be reviewed, you need to be managed and you need to be, things need to be put in place whereby the end of your life can be quality. It's hardly surprising that when people first arrive here, one of their strongest emotions is fear. People are afraid because for a number of reasons, a lot of them it's their symptoms, they've got pain, they're, um, they're feeling nauseated, they're exhausted, they they're not managing their activities of daily living, so they're anxious about um, losing their independence, and, but they're, they are anxious about, you know, the bigger questions of life and what have I done with my life and um, has it all come to this? You can pretend for a little while, but reality hits, and so everyone has to face that big question, uh, you know, this is it. By day, the palliative care wards are surprisingly full of life. Beepers going off, constant chatter, phones ringing, trolleys and staff bustling. But like the sea at night, in the small hours of the morning, it all feels darkly different. Now it's, uh, what time is it? It's 1.30 in the morning on a Saturday morning. Seems pretty quiet in here. Is it always this quiet? No, not always. <laughs> that depends on how many uh, difficult patients we have. I'm on the night shift with Fran, a registered nurse and 24-year veteran of Sacred Heart. What's a difficult patient? Uh, someone who's climbing out of bed, who's restless, who's uh, jumping all around the place. Do you have nights sometimes where there are multiple patients, or difficult patients, where you uh, run off your feet? Yes, we do. <laughs> Quite often. If you were here last night, we are run off our feet. With her is registered nurse Nancy. She's called these wards home for 11 years. I got someone trying to get it in and out of bed. It's a high pulse risk. And then I got someone dying on another room. And I've got someone who's quite short of breath and coughing quite a bit last night and needing a bit of attention. So nothing like this, like tonight. Mm. It was so busy, we didn't have time to sit down. As we speak, I can hear the occasional unearthly moan from somewhere in the ward. It's unnerving, and I think to myself, so this is what dying sounds like. Are you surprised sometimes at the tenaciousness with which people cling to life? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. They do anything to be here for another day, for another to see a, a grandchild that's coming in in a week, um, or or an anniversary coming up. You can see them pushing to live 
Like everyone here, Fran and Nancy have witnessed the extraordinary human moments that occur in the final days of life. Oh, just a couple of years ago, we had a young woman here who was diagnosed, of, obviously, of terminal illness, and um, she wanted to, to be married before she died. And um, we sort of managed to get her that wish. She, she knew she only got a week or two left, so she brought her wedding forward. She had already a day. And um, funny enough, I mean, after she had a wedding, she deteriorate very, very quickly. They have their own, just like a hen's party in here, but it was just sitting together in the bedside and all that. After the wedding, they managed to stay in one room with the husband staying in there for their wedding night as well. It was lovely. It was, it was like almost a big ceremony for us as well, preparing her for the wedding, make sure that her lines is not going to show um, on her dress and she had a full makeup. And By the lines, you mean the uh, medical? Like, I mean, she's got some, you know, some kind of lines, oh, yes. like, yeah, when we give the medication and we make sure that she has this medication before she goes down, so that we, we won't have to interrupt the, the ceremony. She's only 28 or something. That's a beautiful story, but I also find it kind of heartbreaking. And it was. It was. It was. The balancing act required to work here, of being empathetic to your patients' needs, but not being overwhelmed by them, is quite something. Even so, it's not always possible to keep a lid on emotions. I find it when... when People die at night time and the family are leaving, that will bring me to tears. They give you a hug and say thank you so much and, and that's just, it breaks me up sometimes. I asked Fran how they help people who are afraid of dying. It depends. A lot of people are afraid of being in pain, so we tell them that we can help them with that. Um, they don't want to be alone. Um, we help them with everything. Everything. What's everything? Everything they need. You know, if they've lost control of uh, bodily functions, you know, we can help them there. But, you know, they want to keep control of, of something else. A lot of, a lot of people don't want to take morphine because they think that's going to kill them. And, um, but we, you know, everyone here, we explain it all in a good way, don't we? I get the sense that is important for a lot of people to have some control over what happens at the end Absolutely, of their life. Absolutely, because they've lost control of everything else. We're used to seeing people die in the movies with a gentle sigh or a heroic look. In real life, it's not like that. The human body breaking down is a complex business. And I'm starting to learn that words that mean one thing to the rest of us in the language of palliative care take on a completely different meaning. In here, being restless doesn't just mean you have trouble settling. It means you are writhing, sometimes thrashing around. Shortness of breath doesn't just mean puffing when you walk upstairs. It means struggling for every single breath you take simply while lying down. Having seen it all, Fran and Nancy know what they would not want for themselves. I think shortness of breath would be my worst nightmare. It's just the feeling of suffocating and couldn't breathe is quite scary. No, I think I'd like to be knocked out if that was happening. Well, yeah, but I mean, because what would be your worst? <coughs> well, that would be. That, not being not... able to breathe would be the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause but I the worst thing, I, looking after the worst, I don't like vomiting. But you're a nurse, it. you're meant to be good at that. Awful. You haven't seen the vomit here. No. Some, of it's, some of it's horrible. 
It's huge. It's just everywhere. And that, that I don't like to see. Mm. But for me, breathing, you're right. Yeah. Shortness of oh, breath yeah. would be the worst thing. But it must be very confronting as a nurse when you see a patient who isn't responding to medication. It is, and sometimes that's the doctor's order. They're not ordering enough and, um, you know, we have to ring them in the middle of the night to, to get them to order something because it's just not, nothing's working. Some people are in excruciating pain at the end and the family's watching, so um, you have to get the right medication for them. That's a very difficult situation diplomatically for you guys, I would have thought. It is. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there a small sense of loss each time somebody dies or is, is it the opposite, a sense of we've exactly. done our job well? Yeah, I think it's, it's the opposite. It's just like you've done your job. and But um, there's also sometimes a sense that you feel when they didn't have die of a nice death. You feel like you have not achieved what you wanted to achieve by giving them the most dignified and comfortable death because, not because you didn't do your job properly, but because some symptoms are very difficult to manage regardless what medication you use, whatever intervention you've tried, and you, uh, and they die in that state. Do you ever have patients in that situation ask for help to die? Um, occasionally, yes. Um, they yeah, said, why can't I just die now? Or, yeah. Why can't it happen soon? How long have I got left? And how do you respond to a request like that? It's a difficult question to answer, but... Uh, but you just have to give them the reassurance that they, they're not alone. We are here to help them, to guide them through their last days and give them the assurance that they'll be as comfortable as they can, can be. As Nancy said, you sometimes wish you could do more. Um, is that also common in your experience? It does. It happens. Not very often. No. But there are some that it's it's just not. Nothing works, and it's it's horrible to watch. Yeah. I would imagine that is the toughest part of your job. It is. It is. Um, when we've got them nice and comfortable, and and that that's all lovely. But we're just when we can't control their pain or, or their their angst. And a lot of people get terminally restless and it's 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 not nice to watch. They just struggle the whole time. And you do wish you could do something, but there's nothing you can do really. Nothing works, does it? Do you get people that ask you sometimes, please help me to die. I'm I'm ready to go. Not many. No, no, maybe one or two. One or two, but yeah. it's very rare. Maybe it's their understanding that they are here to die, so they don't ask. But there are people who very occasionally would say, you know, help me, just I can't give me something. Stand. I can't stand so, this, just give me something. But, you, you know, it's and you say, no, thing. I'm sorry, we can't.
The compassion and skill of the staff at Sacred Heart is something to witness. They are deeply engaged, not just with their patients' needs, but those of their families as well. To support this, a team of specialists, including dietitians, occupational therapists, psychologists, speech pathologists, chaplains and physiotherapists are on standby. They include people like Ken Webb, who gave up a corporate career because he wanted to do something for the soul. I'm 23. No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm 48 uh, and I'm the nursing unit manager. Ken makes sure all the systems are working properly to help care for the 35 or so people who are typically on the ward. He likes that Sacred Heart was on the front line in dealing with HIV that ravaged Sydney's gay community in the 80s. I like the contrast of a Christian organisation. They don't necessarily agree with that lifestyle, but when some of that group of people became vulnerable and their lives were being devastated, they were in the front of the queue saying, well, come in. You know, they opened up all the beds. I think we had 100 beds at one stage. Um, I'm proud to be associated with an organisation that has that dexterity. Like most of the people I speak to here, Ken is very welcoming, if a little wary, about my agenda. I think one of the interesting things is, is there's been a lot of suspicion around why somebody would be coming up here to rock the boat or, or, or be asking it all to rock the boat. What makes Ken different to most of the people I met here is that he's up front in his support of a sister dying. You know, there's two person, two people having this conversation with you and that is somebody who has a personal belief about um, assisted dying and then um, a respect for the organisation that I work for. But that's an interesting thing. Is <clears throat> assisted dying euthanasia, how much is it normally discussed within this professional, within this place? It's not. It, uh, it's, it's not um, proactively discussed. But then there are patients who will ask or relatives will ask um, and uh, they will raise it and usually it's talked down. Like the, the times I've seen it, uh, we don't talk about that here or uh, that is not an option that we explore or, you know, pe- people are polite about it but they close it down. Um, and not because we worked for a Catholic organisation. My most recent memory of that conversation was the Prince of Wales. Um, so it's just not, not entered into. Assisted dying isn't legal in Australia, so perhaps it's hardly surprising that it's not discussed in palliative care. But the fiercest opposition to it around the world comes from the Catholic Church. So resistance to it here at Sacred Heart comes for many from a very deep place. That's why I'm all the more impressed at being allowed in to talk about it. There's no question there's exemplary and extraordinary care here, but Mm. there's that percentage of people that can't be helped because people die differently and people are different. Mm. How difficult are those sort of cases in a unit like this when they occur? My personal views might conflict with, in terms of assisted dying, um, with the organisation, but I believe in the organisation's mission and values. So I think we we do provide dignity and good care and, and the majority of the time symptoms are managed well. Um, but there are occasions when a symptom isn't controlled or, or someone has a, a rough journey for whatever reason. Um, you know, and you do think about that. Sometimes I wish people were unconscious before they, well, 
not able to swallow and they started, you know, being incontinent because, I mean, the, the loss of dignity involved with, you know, losing control of those functions of, of no longer being able to nourish and nurture yourself and talk and communicate and stuff. I, 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 I wish people would just be unconscious earlier <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. It's the chronic, long, slow um, death that can, that can really be awful. There must be a point where you should be able to say, I have no quality of life. I'm now not able to care for myself, not to have meaningful interactions with, with people, um, you know, for myself, for my family, for my loved ones. I would want them to be able to exit when they wanted to. You've probably almost defined the moment where, if those people are competent, it seems reasonable that they should be able to request something which means they don't have to die that way. Mm. Well, to be honest, probably the reason I want them to be unconscious earlier is so I don't have to see the loss of dignity, but also so that I don't feel discomfort about their discomfort. You know what I mean? Like somebody um, is a very proud person and they are suddenly required to wear a nappy um, because they're bed bound, um, but they're still got all their all their their brain happening. That's when I think it'd be better if they were unconscious. I don't have any problem washing someone, being involved in the care, and, and make them feel better about it. But you know, when somebody when it's 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 so horrible, and I don't think that is a reason to euthanise somebody. And we would never medicate them to be unconscious. Just to be clear. Um, I just sometimes it's a relief when they are slipping in and out of unconsciousness. The term death with dignity is a live one in the debate about assisted dying. Nurse Therese Compton has her definition. So death with dignity is um, that the person who is dying has feels very at home within themselves. So they've all the existential angst is gone, the big questions. Um, the mistakes they've made and the achievements, everything, you know, they've, all their regrets, they've, they've come home to a place of peace about it. And um, their symptoms are very well managed. They're comfortable. Um, very beautiful to see family around and uh, lo- loving family around. They've come home to a sense of um, their own spirituality. And so... So all those things connected is dying with dignity, I think, yes. It's a loving definition. But if you're that patient in a nappy, no matter how loving your environment, it might not feel like dignity to you. I think if they're desperate ill, I'll make them comfortable. I'd like to think that that's what I do well. Dr. Philip Redelman is a visiting medical officer at Sacred Heart. He immediately got my attention at the weekly team meeting with his frank way of speaking. Look, I, I, I'm realistic to know there is, a, there is a small percentage whose pain we never get control. There are people who have anguish and things like that, and we try to work hard to do it, and I don't mind giving people more and more drugs if that makes them comfortable. And I'm quite happy to do those things. But I say to people, if you like, I can offer you medications that may make you drowsier and more peaceful. Would you like that? But my aim is for their comfort 
and it's not to end their life. I separated my own mind, my thoughts, and it's very clear that I don't believe I've ever prescribed a drug with the intention that this will end their life. Have Do you think you've but, done that and unintentionally ended someone's life? Um, okay, hold on. So the drugs I give people, I am well aware, may end their life, but it's not my intention. Philip has just given a short masterclass in what is known as the Doctrine of Double Effect, a way of thinking introduced in the 13th century by the Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas. What it means is that if you're tending to someone who is dying, you can give them medication which may have the unintended effect of helping them die more quickly, but only if your actual intention is to ease suffering. What you must not do, ever, because only God giveth the hours and only God taketh away, is give them medication with the intention of helping them die, even if only death will end their suffering and even if the patient is begging for such relief. Today, that idea is boiled down into the central tenet of all palliative care. We will neither hasten nor prolong death. I've been yeah. fascinated with this and I'm oh, really interested to so How do you work that out in your head? Well, for example... There was a patient who obviously was a doctor, son was a doctor who was a neurologist and she was having a fit and he was there too. So we, we wanted to stop the fit. So we gave some IV dex, Valium, that's fine. You give 10, it didn't seem to stop it. So you gave 20, which is now getting a big dose without resuscitation equipment and didn't stop feeding. So then I looked at him, he looked at me. And we gave her another one. Now, that is, that is really being a sportsman that you have a high risk that, that you know, they may stop breathing. And, but that was never our intention. And so, I, you know, I think you can have the... You, you, you might say you take risks, but you do things for comfort care with a consequence that I know that sometimes, you know, people can die from that. But it's my intention has never been to... I've never drawn up a dose and say, give them that, which I believe would... 100% shorten their life. Not shorten their life, kill them, mm. you know. I've often drawn up doses that I think may shorten their life but they need it for their comfort care and that has always been my intention. I will give everything to, to relieve their suffering. I'm Not to be mean. I would, you know, I would, if that's right, take the risk for them that they might die, fair enough, but I wouldn't hold back saying with my thoughts, oh, it might kill them. It's such an interesting Chinese wall that you yeah. that you build yeah. in your well, own head. We do. That's the only way we can survive too. You know, that, that might be how we think and that's what we do. What does this mean in practice? Because people die differently, it means different things. For most patients, in the expert hands of a palliative care team, medication delivered with the intention of easing suffering but not to hasten death is sufficient. Their pain is controlled, nature takes its course, and they die a good death. For a small number of patients with particularly difficult symptoms to manage, agitation, existential distress, shortness of breath, the only way their symptoms can be controlled is by terminal sedation, a slowly induced coma which, if managed right, you will not wake up from. It's been dubbed pharmaceutical oblivion, and even this can't address all suffering. And for that small percentage whose pain, as Philip said, they can never get control of, Therese Compton. I have no question that you do everything you can to manage pain, but not all pain can be managed, even That's Palliative right. Care Australia right. yes. says that. So right. when you reach those cases yes. and there's a limit to how much pain relief you'll give because you don't want to be 
intentionally ending someone's life. How do you deal with that? Well, um, Dr. Chai will tell you that that's probably only about 4% Mm. of pain that you can't manage. And I've only seen that in Sacred Heart about three times in 10 years. And that's difficult. It's extraordinarily difficult. And uh, you feel at your wit's end. Yeah, it is difficult. Yeah. That small number, 4% of people whose suffering is beyond the reach of even the best palliative care can offer, squares with the numbers from overseas, where those helped to die make up a tiny percentage of the population. In Australia, we offer that 4% nothing, primarily because the law forbids it, but also because a religious idea from 800 years ago still informs our medical practice. Yet as Belgium, a predominantly Catholic country, has shown, it's possible to find a way for 13th century religious thinking to sit alongside 21st century medicine. I spoke to a, a beautiful man in Belgium called yeah. Senna Mulli, who was a senior palliative yeah. surgeon there and uh, physician. And their euthanasia laws came out of their palliative care system. And he said his philosophy is, if the patient sees there's no solution and I as their doctor see there's no solution other than death, how can I not help them? Why is it not possible to have that philosophy in practice here? I just see that uh, as murder. That's all I can say. I wouldn't be part of that. I just couldn't be part of that. Even at the patient's uh, desperate request? Yeah, that's right. Palliative Care Australia acknowledges that there are some patients who persistently and rationally request a hasten death. They say the numbers are few. Beyond the law, Philip Redelman offers another reason why this might be. In your experience, how common is it that people request a hasten death? You have to understand that it goes something like this in the hospice. You say, oh, you meet people and they say... You know, I wish it was over tomorrow. And they said, but you wouldn't do that anyway. I've already got my excuse before I even opened my mouth. That's true, though, isn't it? Well, it is true. So we, we don't do that. But once you come into hospital, you lose control. You can't do anything about it. We, we're a unit, whether we, we see 50 patients, we've got 50 people upstairs. Last week was exceptional, there was four. Normally it's one or two. So it, it's not a high thing that we see. But there might be a, a bias, you know, they, already they're thinking about that we won't do it, so why bother wasting their breath? Why should a competent adult who's dying, who requests help to die quickly, be subjected to a slow death? I, I guess maybe it might be because the doctor isn't going to do, <laughs> going to do you know, shorten their life in a way. I just, I guess I I say in some ways that's their destiny. Your number's up, your number's up. And I think it's not a slow death. It's slower than they want is probably the true thing. And there are are times it takes longer. I'm sure I can tell you of cases where the 
within that slow death, there was good came out of it. Even come on, it's hard to rationalise that, but I've seen families pull together, and it's been good for the families. But it's still, I do, I understand that it is. A, it always is a slow death. I mean, it's just as hard sometimes for the doctors to go in each day, and you think, how can this person still be alive today? There, but that's how it is, and I know I'm not going to change the status quo. The people that I'm thinking about are just, as a general, is the people who go, who just get weaker, you know, and they lapse into a coma, but they don't die straight away. So you shouldn't colour it with saying they had great pain and things like that, because that's not good. You no, know, no, 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 I'm not I'm, suggesting I'm, all that's patients. That's what I'm thinking. Yes. I don't it, think it's the patients that are suffering. I think they're unconscious. Not. That's certainly not the testimony yeah. I've had. I, I, the ones that I get, the most problems I get is with the families. That, that, that they say, oh, they, they, they say, you know, if he was a dog, you would shoot him. And it's just that the, fa the family are so distressed that this person keeps lingering on. I don't doubt for one second Philip's position. 99 times out of 100, if I were dying, I would want him in the trenches with me. But if I were that 100th person, part of the 4% whose suffering they can't get hold of? What's it like to be one of them? Spencer Ratcliffe's partner Deb was 50 when she was diagnosed with adenocarcinoma and later the lethal lung cancer mesothelioma. After 43 cycles of chemotherapy, her fight for life led inevitably to palliative care at another hospital in New South Wales. But in Deb's case, medication was no match for the searing pain of dying. I'll give you an example of one night, which was probably in the last 10 days of her life, <clears throat> when I was on night duty, so to speak, with her. They can only... The doctors can only administer, as you would know, morphine uh, certain amounts over certain hours. Otherwise, that can put the patient to sleep permanently. And obviously that's not allowed. So as much as the patient may want that, the doctors are understandably, uh, nurses, um, scared stiff of overdosing their patients. <clears throat> the pain was getting so intense on this particular night that... <clears throat> Deb sort of called out to me and said, Spencer, I need to walk. I must walk. I've just got to do something. We walked around the corridors of this hospital for six hours until she was allowed to have more morphine. And during those six hours, Andrew, I probably still got the marks. Her nails were clawed into my back through sheer hell. As we just walked past doors, wherever they were, leading into, you know, utility rooms, and she'd just scratch at the door. Just She had to do something to alleviate the horrendous pain she was in. I've never seen pain like it. I've been a journalist for 49 years. I've seen people in pain all over the world, in wars and whatever else. I have never seen anybody in such pain as she was in that night. And that was the night I wanted her to go. But you can't do it. What kind of pain relief did you ask for? Did you speak to the nursing staff and ask constantly, for help? Constantly. <clears throat> that little red buzzer which you press, I was, my finger was on it almost all the time. And because they're busy people, the nurses, especially on night duty, so I was forever walking out to the nurses' station, looking for nurses, searching for them. Why were they uh, reluctant to provide extra pain relief? Because 
they were scared that they would overdose her. Did they say that directly when you they asked said we her? Can only, we're not allowed to give any more for another two hours and 14 minutes or whatever. It's all written down on the chart. Um, why not, I'd say, because that's the amount we, we're not allowed, doctor says we're not allowed to give any more than that. Why not? Because it's the legal limit that we're allowed to give. She's only allowed a certain amount every hour or two hours or whatever. But the, because the pain just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, but the amount of morphine grows too, but not in accordance with the pain. It's very hard to measure that. But and you, you can tell when someone's in screaming pain and they're just crying. Um, please, can she have some more? No. So how can you just tell me that? How can you sit and watch her in such pain and tell me she can't have more morphine? Because the doctor says I can't. Did you ask directly for them to do something more? Yes, I did. And they said, I, I asked directly one night to the palliative care, the head of the palliative care. I took him aside and I said, look, this is crazy. You can see that the pain she's in, what can you do to help her? Is how I worded it, because I knew how delicate the conversation was. We can do no more than we are doing, Spencer. Uh, <clears throat> and I said, well, you know, what... What are, what are we supposed to do? Just sit and watch her scream herself to death in pain. Sorry. And he said, well, we're not allowed to do any more. Euthanasia is not legal. And you just shake your head and go, well, what the hell can you do? Did she at this time express a desire was, to be put out of her she pain? She did. She did. And she said, Spencer, I, I don't want this anymore. And that's when she said, can you find out for me what's necessary to take? And I did. And um, I said I had it, and she said, would I help her? And I said, I can't do it. Just couldn't do it. Why couldn't you do it? Because I loved her. So where's that line between loving someone so much to put them out of pain and loving them so much that she can't put them out of pain? For three years I'd thought about it. When you get there, it's a different thing. It's a different world entirely, Andrew. And I still will probably never know whether that was the right answer or the wrong answer, but what it did make me feel was everybody, every doctor in the hospital knew she was dying. She was in the room where you go before you die. And <clears throat> should a relative be left to do that? You know, you put a paper bag over someone's head, do you inject them with something, do you shove tablets down their mouth? How hard do you think it is for nursing and medical staff in that situation to see somebody clearly in excruciating pain, but the rules tell them they can't help them as much as they need it. Andrew, I, I think it must be horrendous for them. I, I would think they must go home at night and never bloody sleep and all, all they want to do is perhaps help, but they can't. They've got their hands tied behind their back because of the law. With days left to live, Deb demanded to leave the hospital so she could die at home. As I listened to Spencer's anguished retelling of Deb's last days, I thought of the way they help people die in Oregon, the way I had increasingly come to believe we should adopt here, which is where someone like Deb is legally prescribed life-ending medication that they can choose to swallow or not. No doctor needs to be involved at the end. It's entirely the patient's choice. I asked Spencer if he thought that would have worked for Deb. Absolutely. Far better. If she'd been able to take a drink that could have uh, put an end to it all, I have no doubt she would have done so. I have no doubt at all.
So why is the acceptance I found within the medical profession overseas that palliative care and assisted dying can work together so hard to find in Australia? Perhaps it's partly to do with the information they're getting. I asked Ken Webb if there was any understanding of what happens in places like Belgium or the Netherlands or Oregon. From a personal perspective, I thought I knew a little bit, um, a bit. Uh, and then talking to your producer, Bronwyn, I realised how little I knew. Uh, in general, um, I think we're informed by media uh, and the, the sort of the very um, dramatic situations of someone having treatment removed and that somehow being construed with euthanasia and, and, and it's all of that sort of stuff that informs our, our knowledge. So I don't know. I mean, if you want to take the most conservative example, mm. Oregon, the conditions are you have to be terminally ill with six months or less to live in intolerable pain. Uh, two doctors have to agree on that. You have to make an oral and a written request. You have to have all your options discussed with you, palliative care, all the other options. Plus, you need to indicate that you fully understand what it is you're asking for. Then 15 days later, you have to reapply for that process. And then if the <coughs> doctors agree that you meet the medical and all the conditions, then and only then will you be written a prescription for the medicine, which is then entirely up to you to take. And 40% of people that are given it don't take it, which tells you a lot. Mm. The percentage of people who die in Oregon to whom this law has applied in the 17 years it's been going is less than 1%. It's never changed. Wow. I didn't know that. I mean, that's what I assumed would happen. When you talk to people about having the option, it's about having the option, not about taking it. Um, and that, yeah, and I, from what you say, I mean, people don't necessarily go there. Um, well, ironically, they've discovered that almost the greatest benefit of assisted dying medication is it's, it is in itself palliative. It removes anxiety. It allows people to focus on those things at the end of their life, which we would all want to focus on. Our own thoughts, our own families, our own farewells, uh, the existential questions without being in a panic about what's going to happen at the end. I get that. Personally, I, I, w I, would, I would like to have that option in my in my drawer. I might not ever use it, but it would be comforting to me, personally. Philip Redelman's understanding of how the laws work overseas was even more revealing. But overseas, right, once, if you were, if you came, I, I don't know how they do it, I haven't looked at the fine details or anything like that, but if you were a palliative care doctor and you walked in, worked into, into a hospital and I said to them, here is the bit of paper that says it's okay, the legal document like, like that, then the nurses would say, that's fine. If you wrote it, they would give it. No. No, that's well, not how it works. Wouldn't, they wouldn't... They no, wouldn't no, first of all, the nurses can't do it. It takes two, well, do two doctors right, to doc sign off yeah, on it. Right. Uh, and it, it happens over a period of time. It's not a, like a two-week thing. And, and usually what they find with this is they spend a lot of time with that patient, patient counselling yeah, them, yeah. and one of those doctors is almost always their family doctor, yeah. so they already know them. So it's never quick, yeah. it's never easy, and it's never done easily. Okay, fair enough. But what about the person with some dementia? There's plenty of, you know, not, they're not mad. 
there that were, and, and the family say, look, I think this is a good idea and things like that. Look, mum, things are tough at home. How does that happen over there? What protection do they have there? They have to be able to competently request a doctor and more than one doctor. And in the case of psychiatric in Belgium, it's three doctors have to sign off. They have to agree that this person is competent. This is a competent and rational decision. So it's not an advanced directive that they read five years later yeah. and just no. knock them out. Oh, fair enough. I mean, you just need such guidelines. And they have spent years, the medical profession, working out yeah. these guidelines. Yeah. And yes, there are people who have strong moral objections yeah. who will not participate. And that is as it should, should and will yeah. always be. Yeah. But it doesn't mean the system isn't very carefully thought through. And there are are a lot of safeguards. Maybe it is working, but, you know, I haven't, I, in all fairness, I haven't studied this recently or anything like that, so. And look, no, I, yeah. that, I that, accept that's, that. that. That's really the situation. The reason oh, I raise yeah. it is because uh, it was doctors in Netherlands that designed the system yeah. there. It was palliative care doctors in Belgium that did it. It was doctors in Oregon who took a neutral position, so didn't oppose it, that made that law possible. Yeah. And so it feels to me that doctors such as yourselves who don't ever need to agree with it. Nonetheless, is it not your duty to perhaps pay closer attention to what the arguments are so that you can say in the end, look, I take a moral stand and I don't agree with it, but I realise that these slippery slope arguments are not necessarily true, that it is possible to create a system which is policed. Yes, that's right at the end of the day. But when it comes to looking well, I'll look a bit harder, but that's at the moment it's not high on my agenda at the topics. The men and women who work in palliative care are asked to provide services that are so much more than purely medical. That's because dying is more than a medical experience. It's spiritual existential and ultimately deeply personal. Two things struck me about the doctors and nurses I spoke to at Sacred Heart. One, their deep commitment and compassion towards their patients. And two, the universal acknowledgement of how hard they found it when a patient was beyond their help. It seemed to me that if they understood better how their counterparts overseas had embraced a way to assist those unfortunate few to die they would not be so resistant to the thought of doing the same here, or at least allowing others to. But the deeper I dug, the more I found that this resistance was not only implacable, but its implications for some patients deeply troubling. Next episode, join me as I talk with the director of Sacred Heart, Professor Richard Chai, and ask, whose life is it anyway? Personally, I would like to have that option in my, in my drawer. I might not ever use it, but it would be comforting to me. Well, I've decided after being here just for a week that uh, yeah. I want to be hit by a comet while having sex. <laughs> oh, yeah, we'll arrange that for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe. 
and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels shooting from your brow Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south